most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, April 15th, 2022, the 450th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Well, first, a happy good Friday to the faithful out there. And second, the 450th full day of Barack Obama's third term as served by Joe Biden. You did it. That's amazing. 450 days we have tolerated living in an illegitimate totalitarian dictatorship. If I was a talk radio show, I would have like some bells and whistles sounds or maybe a horn or a whoopee cushion or something. They're not very creative. But I was looking at the little web app that counts these days for me. I don't just keep track of them by hand. And I was like, wow, 450 days. That's a really long time. We have completely cleared 15 months dealing with a totally illegitimate, feckless, deranged, dementia patient and pervert pretending to be president. And we're mostly still standing. So I just thought I would start the show with a little positivity. Congratulations, everybody. Now, let's get back to talking about Elon Musk, because really, there's nothing else to talk about. Just kidding. There's so much other stuff to talk about, and we're going to get to some of it a little later. But we really do have to talk about Elon Musk because there is more news. It has been a little over 24 hours since Elon Musk announced his attention to acquire Twitter in full and take the company private after getting rid of all of the awful people who run it and probably all of the woke millennial employees that they have as well. And so Twitter's board of directors has gotten together to figure out how to thwart Elon Musk's attempt at taking over Twitter. And they have settled on a poison pill strategy. They announced that they have approved a shareholder rights plan, otherwise known as a poison pill, that allows shareholders to purchase discounted stock in the event of an entity or person acquiring more than a 15% stake in the company without the board's approval. Now, I am not an investment expert, 
But my understanding of this is that if Elon continues down his current path of acquiring more shares in Twitter in the open market, this poison pill will kick in when he hits 15%. But let's start at understanding what a poison pill is. And so this is from Investopedia. The term poison pill refers to a defense strategy used by a target firm, this being Twitter, to prevent or discourage a potential hostile takeover by an acquiring company. And in this case, that would be Elon Musk and whichever corporate entity he uses to acquire Twitter. Potential targets use this tactic in order to make them look less attractive to the potential acquirer. So basically, it's like if you feel like you're getting sexually harassed at work by your boss, instead of confronting the problem head on, you just decide to gain 50 pounds. Problem solved. Although they're not always the first and best way to defend a company, poison pills are generally very effective. Takeovers are fairly common in the business world, where one company makes an offer to assume control over another. Larger companies tend to take over smaller ones if they want to get into a new market, when there are operational benefits by combining both entities, or when the acquirer wants to eliminate the competition. Takeovers, though, aren't always harmonious and become hostile when the target doesn't entertain or want to be taken over. The poison pill tactic has been around since the 1980s and was devised by New York-based legal firm Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. The name comes from the poison pill spies carried in the past to avoid being questioned by their enemies in the event they were captured. It was designed as a way to prevent an acquiring company from buying a majority share in the potential target or from negotiating with shareholders directly at a time when takeovers were becoming very frequent and common. And that is kind of an amusing analogy. You know, you're a soldier on the battlefield and you got like cyanide or something in your pocket and you get captured and you're like, I would rather die than tell them my secrets. They will never take me alive. And so they pop the pill and then they're dead. And Twitter has chosen to do that today. Congratulations, Twitter. When a company becomes the target of a hostile takeover, it may use the poison pill strategy to make itself less attractive to the potential acquirer. As the name indicates, a poison pill is analogous to something that's difficult to swallow or accept. A company targeted for an unwanted takeover may use a poison pill to make its shares unfavorable to the acquiring firm or individual. Poison pills also significantly raise the cost of acquisitions and create big disincentives to deter such attempts completely. The mechanism protects minority shareholders and avoids the change of control of company management. Implementing a poison pill may not always indicate that the company is not willing to be acquired. At times, it may be enacted to get a higher valuation or more favorable terms for the acquisition. Since shareholders who are the actual owners of the company, can vote by majority to favor the acquisition, the target company management deploys a poison pill, which is usually a specially designed shareholder rights plan with certain conditions drafted specifically to thwart attempted takeovers. There are three major potential disadvantages to poison pills. One, 
Stock values become diluted, so shareholders often have to purchase new shares just to keep even. Two, institutional investors are discouraged from buying into corporations that have aggressive defenses. Three, ineffective managers can stay in place through poison pills. If that weren't the case, outside venture capitalists might be able to buy the firm and approve its value with better managing staff. And it seems like Twitter is prepared to embrace all three of those because the last thing they can do is allow control of the censorship weapon to be turned over to the other side. And that is how they see it. Elon Musk's goal, if he is to be trusted, and we don't know yet if he is, but he says his goal is to decentralize Twitter and open it up as a public square of free speech. And it's been incredible in the last 24 hours to see people just come out of the woodwork to shamelessly announce their opposition to free speech. They're absolutely horrified. And it's funny being the side that represents the modern version of book burning and then tweeting nonstop about how everyone else is a fascist. If this platform is opened up to free speech, fascists are going to come in here and they're going to say racist, fascist things. And in order to prevent that, we have to make sure a sizable portion of the population is never allowed to say anything in public because they're the fascists. Now, Zero Hedge had a good write up of this situation on the site today. So I'm going to share that with you. The headline is Twitter board adopts poison pill to thwart Musk takeover, exposing itself to titanic legal liability. As was widely expected and reported in the aftermath of Elon Musk going hostile on Thursday morning. On Friday morning, Twitter adopted a measure that will shield it from hostile acquisition bids in a desperate step to prevent billionaire Elon Musk's offer to take the company private and make it a bastion of free speech. The board set up a shareholder rights plan, also known as a poison pill, which, as we clarified yesterday, for the benefit of the company's overly dramatic, overly literal and overly snowflake employees, is not literal. And which is exercisable if a party, Elon Musk, acquires 15% of the stock without prior approval, lasting for one year. So if Elon Musk hits that 15%, the shareholder rights plan is enacted, the poison pill comes in, and for the next year, that poison pill is in effect. That is what Twitter's board of directors has decided. If the pill had expired the day after the midterms, it may have been a bit too obvious. And that's a great point. This is specifically designed to make sure that Twitter does not become a free speech platform before the midterms. Consider that the Democrats and their fake president, Joe Biden, are already failing spectacularly in every imaginable way. Joe Biden is at 33 percent approval in the country. He has the worst approval of all time. The guy with by far the most votes for president ever 
now has historically low approval ratings. That's a messaging problem. It's just a messaging problem. Barack Obama said last week, well, we have a great story and we just need to tell it. Sure you do, guy. The plan seeks to ensure that anyone taking control of Twitter through open market accumulation pays all shareholders an appropriate control premium, according to a statement Friday. For a company that has struggled greatly with value creation, on Friday, Twitter stock closed at $45.08, or 18 cents higher than where it closed on its first day as a public company. $44.90. And Twitter went public on November 7th, 2013. Okay. So in eight and a half years, Twitter's stock has gained 18 cents and they don't offer a dividend. A poison pill defense strategy allows existing shareholders the right to purchase additional shares at a discount, effectively diluting the ownership interest of the hostile party. Poison pills are common among companies under fire from activist investors or in hostile takeover situations. And I suppose you could argue that Elon Musk is both of those in some sense. Under Twitter's plan, each right will entitle its holder to purchase at the then current exercise price additional shares of common stock having a then current market value of twice the exercise price of the right. Twitter enacted the plan to buy time. Bloomberg reported citing a person familiar with the matter, although it wasn't clear time for what at fifty four dollars, 20 cents. Musk's offer represents a premium to the historical Twitter price since IPO for 92% of the time. So 92% of the time that Twitter has been a public company, their stock value has been lower than what Elon Musk offered. And since the Twitter board is about to get bombarded with a barrage of lawsuits claiming it violated its fiduciary duty, the board also said it wants to be able to analyze and negotiate any deal and may still accept it. Spoiler alert, it won't. Twitter's board met Thursday to review Musk's proposal, which according to the world's richest man was his best and final offer and who had already accrued a stake of more than 9% in Twitter since earlier this year to determine if it was in the best interest of the company and all of its shareholders. Included in Musk's security filing, disclosing the bid Thursday morning, was a script of text he sent to the company. In it, he said, it's a high price and your shareholders will love it. Hilariously, one prominent and former investor said the offer was too low and the market reaction appeared to agree. Saudi Arabia's Prince Al-Walid bin Talal said the deal doesn't come close to the intrinsic value of the popular social media platform, which is hilarious, since as we showed yesterday, it appears the prince no longer has direct ownership of even one share of Twitter stock. Speaking later Thursday at a TED conference, Musk said he wasn't sure he will actually be able to acquire it. He added that his intent was to also retain as many shareholders as is allowed by law, rather than keeping sole ownership of the company himself. After initially surging, Twitter's shares dropped 
1.7% in New York on Thursday, reflecting the market's view that the deal is likely to be rejected or to fall through. Musk first disclosed his Twitter stake on April 4th, making him the largest individual investor. At the TED conference, he indicated that he has a plan B if Twitter's board rejects his offer. He declined to elaborate. But in his filing earlier in the day, he said he would rethink his investment if the bid failed. And by the way, Elon Musk's response on Twitter to Al-Walid bin Talal is fantastic. He said, interesting, just two questions, if I may. How much of Twitter does the kingdom own directly and indirectly? And what are the kingdom's views on journalistic freedom of speech? And I think we can surmise the answers to both of those questions, but it's great that Elon Musk went ahead and made that narrative public. Back to Zero Hedge. If the deal doesn't work, given that I don't have confidence in management, nor do I believe I can drive the necessary change in the public market, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder, said Musk. Previewing the poison pill defense on Thursday, Cameron Winklevoss, founder of the Gemini cryptocurrency exchange, tweeted that Twitter is considering a poison pill to thwart Elon Musk's offer. In response, Musk said that a poison pill move would be a breach of the board's fiduciary duty and could expose Twitter's board to titanic legal liability. Winklevoss alleged in his tweet that by adopting the poison pill tactic, Twitter was demonstrating its commitment to preserve the status quo, even if it has negative impact on existing shareholders. They would rather self-immolate than give up their censorship programs. This shows you how deeply committed they are to Orwellian control of the narratives and global discourse. Scary, he wrote. Twitter has repeatedly suppressed and shadow banned conservative viewpoints, allegations the company has repeatedly denied. That is incredible, honestly. Adam Candube a law professor at Michigan State University said that Twitter's board could face legal consequences if they turned down an offer that's financially lucrative to shareholders. Twitter's owned by shareholders and the directors have to act in a way that's in their best interests, not in the way that allows them to keep control of the corporation, Kandub told the Epoch Times. If they turn down a very favorable price, there will be dereliction of their legal duty and there could be lots of legal consequences. And to pause for a second, I wonder if this is just part of a delay strategy, as we've seen in so many other aspects of everything that's been happening the last couple of years. If they can put this into the legal system, the legal process might see them right through the midterms to the point where they don't have to worry about this to the same degree. They very well may just be buying themselves time so they can tie this all up in the courts. It seems pretty clear that they are violating their fiduciary duty in every way imaginable, but maybe they don't care. That's something we see over and over and over again. People do illegal or lawless things or irresponsible things, and they don't care. They don't care if anybody finds out. They don't care that everybody agrees they did something wrong. They just care if they buy themselves enough time so they can still get what they want out of the system and then figure out other corrupt ways to eventually get their way. 
Like, imagine they get through midterms, they steal a bunch of elections, and then they pack the Supreme Court, for instance. But also consider what this means about how bad the Democrat prospects are. Again, Biden, 33%. The Democrats are headed for a wipeout. The red wave is coming to crash upon them once again. Imagine what Joe Biden's rating would be if people knew the truth about anything. The people in that 33% of the country who still support Joe Biden are among the most ignorant and clueless people in the history of the world. It is like Cro-Magnon level. They haven't discovered fire yet. That's how confused they are about reality. Everything they think is automatically wrong because they don't know anything true and they're afraid to discover anything true. That's how and why they still support Joe Biden. Maybe there's some small percentage in there that actually knows all of this stuff that's going on and is just pure cold-blooded evil. And you can find them just simply by looking down the World Economic Forum's list of partners. But for everyone else, so clueless. A free speech site would probably reduce Joe Biden's approval rating in the next three weeks to single digits. And you're welcome to think I'm crazy about that, but it has been one of the operating theories of this podcast for the entire time I've been doing it virtually, that I do maintain faith in the people's ability to move toward truth once they are exposed to it. People in general do not want to be wrong all the time. And that's what the real hangup is. They don't want to actually research these subjects because they have the sneaking suspicion that they are wrong. And if they accept that, they'll feel like their life in some way has ended. They're too far down the wrong path to ever turn around and go back to the beginning and start their life down the right path. And it's really hard. That's why they don't want to do it. They live a life of relative comfort and they don't want to leave that life. And that comfort as I say, is relative. For some people, the extremely wealthy, their level of comfort is entirely different for the sort of millennial loser who spent the pandemic ordering food and eating on their couch while watching everything on Netflix and being paid to do so by their government who was more than happy to keep them home. There is a level of comfort in that as well. They're not at a spa in Ibiza. But there is comfort knowing that you have money coming in from the government. You don't have to do anything. Now just figure out how to not cause us problems. Many people like to live that way. Twitter becoming a free speech site, that ends the whole program. I said yesterday, this is their death star. And it really is. Everything topples. Once free speech happens and listen, I don't know how long this Twitter thing's going to take. I don't know which direction it's going to go, but when Donald Trump signs on and begins posting on truth, social 
people are going to gravitate that direction no matter what. Donald Trump is still the biggest game in town and will be for the foreseeable future. And so I've said many times that once people do begin to gravitate toward a free speech venue, things will begin to shift radically. If that free speech venue is Twitter, where they already are, well, that's enormous. Back to the Zero Hedge article so we can finish this off. Now that his original plan has been thwarted, Musk said he has a plan B in store for the company, although he did not disclose what it is. Mark Cuban pointed out yesterday, want to see the whole world lose their shit? Get Peter Thiel to partner with Elon and raise the bid for Twitter. And that would make them lose their minds because Thiel is Trump's billionaire, Trump's tech guy. One possible response is for Elon to be joined by one or more like-minded anti-censorship investors such as Peter Thiel, who either build up stakes through the poison pill limit in the process making a management and board replacement by proxy vote the simple outcome, or they just raise the takeover price to a level that even the woke Twitter board cannot reject. Or... Skip the whale investor approach entirely and open up Twitter to a mass investor buyout in the form of a DAO where token holders will get to vote on what's trending and who gets verified. And because we are going to be hearing about DAOs quite a bit in the future, let's find out what they are. Let's head back to Investopedia. So DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. One of the major features of digital currencies is that they are decentralized. This means they are not controlled by a single institution like a government or central bank, but instead are divided among a variety of computers, networks, and nodes. In many cases, virtual currencies make use of this decentralized status to attain levels of privacy and security that are typically unavailable to standard currencies and their transactions. Inspired by the decentralization of cryptocurrencies, a group of developers came up with the idea for a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO in 2016. The DAO was an organization that was designed to be automated and decentralized. It acted as a form of venture capital fund based on open source code and without a typical management structure or board of directors. To be fully decentralized, the DAO was unaffiliated with any particular nation state, though it made use of the Ethereum network. Why make an organization like the DAO? The developers of the DAO believed they could eliminate human error or manipulation of investor funds by placing decision-making power into the hands of an automated system and a crowdsourced process. Fueled by Ether, the DAO was designed to allow investors to send money from anywhere in the world anonymously. The DAO would then provide those owners tokens, allowing them voting rights on possible projects. The DAO launched in late April 2016 thanks to a month-long crowd sale of tokens that raised more than $150 million in funds. At the time, the launch was the largest crowdfunding campaign of all time. So getting back to the Zero Hedge article, this is one of the potential options that Elon might be thinking about for his plan B. And to finish this off, 
Alternatively, Musk can take his appeal directly to his 82 million Twitter followers, a quarter of Twitter's total 217 million global daily active users. Now, consider that number just for a second. 217 million people. That's all of the people who use Twitter on a daily basis. That is not very high. Our perception of Twitter is totally outsized, and that's because Twitter works in concert with the media and the public health organizations and all the corporations controlled by the World Economic Forum. This stuff works together, and it's all sending the same message. So we feel like the impact of Twitter is much greater than it actually is or should be. So Musk can take his appeal to his 82 million Twitter followers and have them all buy several shares, then pledge them for Elon during the next proxy vote. Because as much as Twitter wants to reject any buyout offer that will prevent it from imposing the censorship its liberal board and employees love so much, there is only so much it can do. In the end, however, the only question is how dedicated Musk is to control Twitter. Because if he really wants it, he will get it. And that sentiment was actually just echoed on Fox News a couple of hours ago by Steve Forbes. He basically said there's not ultimately anything they can do to stop Elon Musk if he really wants to make this happen. So again, all of this is very interesting. And now there are some people out there who are like, this whole thing is a smoke show. It's a distraction. Elon Musk is not on the good side of anything. He is doing this to make it seem like a good thing and then nothing will progress. And that is extremely pessimistic. It may well be true. I don't think it is. And here's why. First off, I don't know what Twitter could possibly do to expose their corruption and their commitment to the censorship regime any more severely than this. And the knock-on effect of watching all of these media figures and companies and people like Al-Walid bin Talal coming out and exposing themselves as part of that censorship regime, people who are benefiting from that censorship regime, people who are standing up in opposition to the protection of our most basic human right. It's kind of magnificent. And think about what else we're learning. And I don't mean everyone is just learning for the first time. I mean, we as a collective, the public, are learning about this stuff. For instance, what does it mean that a member of the Saudi royal family, who himself is not a very good guy, gets to exercise control over the most powerful tool of censorship? on the American public. That's really bad. And the fact that companies like Vanguard are doing the same thing is no better. The richest, most powerful people, entities, and companies in the world are trying to support the Twitter board of directors to make sure that Twitter can't be opened as a free speech platform. People need to understand what that means. And then there's another thing that I still have not heard talked about anywhere at all. 
But Elon Musk would essentially, if I'm getting this right, have access to all of Twitter's data. People have talked about the algorithm, but what about all the user data? What about all the direct messages? You know, Twitter has been a platform that allows the rampant spread of pornography, some of it illegal pornography and some of it related to child pornography and child trafficking. That stuff exists in people's direct messages and through different avenues on Twitter. And then you also have to suspect that all of the blue anon conspiracy theorists in the mainstream media that we refer to as journalists, well, they do a lot of their communicating on Twitter through direct messages. How many of them have conspired on there to suppress stories for the benefit of one political movement? I won't even say party. Obviously, the Democrat Communist Party is favored by those people, but it's really the global communist order. It's really the uniparty that they are protecting and the institution of the mainstream media. And then in addition to that, there's kind of a wild card too. Twitter is in a ton of legal trouble, as all the legacy social media companies are. Twitter as a company has broken the law in countless ways. What happens if someone comes in with a controlling interest who actually doesn't want the company to be a hub of criminal activity? There are a lot of ways this can go, but none of them seem like they will be good for the people currently in control of Twitter and whether that includes intelligence agencies and government entities, this is something that could have a major impact going forward. Now, switching subjects with the only segue involving the corruption of the global communist order. Let's talk about famous Democrat bundler. Ed Buck, who I've mentioned on the podcast many, many times. This is from the New York Post. Hollywood Democratic donor Ed Buck sentenced to 30 years for meth ODs. But it's so much more than that. Democratic mega donor Ed Buck was sentenced to 30 years in prison on Thursday for fatally injecting two gay men with methamphetamine in exchange for sex at his West Hollywood apartment. Judge Christina A. Snyder said the sentencing decision was difficult as she balanced the philanthropic work Buck had done in his life, supporting LGBTQ and animal rights causes with the horrific crimes that she called more than just an accident. OK, so he is a Democrat donor. More accurately, he's a Democrat bundler, which means he raises money from multiple sources on behalf of different candidates. Some of those specifically include Hillary Clinton, Adam Schiff and Ted Lieu. And the judge in this case believes that the sentencing for the killing of two black male escorts, the killing and drugging of these people. She has to weigh that against all the good he's done by donating to Democrat causes because he claims to be supporting LGBTQ and animals. And it's sad to say, but this is very typical for the communist moral compass. He helped the state so much that that should be weighed against 
actual horrific crimes. These people are deranged. Prosecutors sought a life sentence for Buck, 67, arguing he was a sexual predator who abused vulnerable men, often young, black, homeless, and addicted to drugs, who'd resorted to sex work in order to get their fix. The defense requested a 10-year sentence below the federal minimum of 20 years, claiming he was sexually abused as a child and that health problems led him to drug addiction. And considering that in the context of the current discussion about grooming, it's kind of amazing that to be abused as a young child is then somehow going to give you immunity from the consequences of horrific crimes you commit at a later age. I mean, how convenient. Now they can just abuse all the children collectively, and then they'll never have to prosecute anyone as long as they have appropriately served the state. Genius. I wonder if they ever consider that his history of sexual abuse as a child and his drug addiction have anything to do with his support of Democrat causes. The wealthy political activist who's donated $500,000 to mostly Democrat causes since 2000 was convicted last July in the deaths of 26-year-old Jamel Moore and 55-year-old Timothy Dean. But even after the two men died, Buck continued to inject more men with alarming doses of meth and then sexually assault them while they were unconscious, prosecutors said. Another man, Dane Brown, was repeatedly injected by Buck but survived and his harrowing account of being revived twice finally led to Buck's arrest in 2019. And that word finally is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Why should anyone finally be arrested after you have a history of drugging and killing gay male escorts? And maybe that's redundant. Maybe I could have just said male escorts. An investigation revealed that Buck had purchased a plane ticket for Moore, who was black, to fly from Texas to Los Angeles to, quote, party and play with the older white man in July of 2017. Moore's family and activists had pushed for Buck's arrest, rallying outside his apartment, charging that his wealth, political connections and his race precluded him from facing consequences. And of course, that's obviously true. Except if you were to actually break that down and rank those, the reason he wasn't arrested was his political connections. The fact that he was wealthy was ancillary, maybe. The fact that he was white is not the issue. It's because of the political connections. 18 months later, in January 2019, while still under investigation for Moore's death, Dean died in Buck's apartment, also from a meth overdose. Even after Dean's death, Buck was not arrested. Before Buck's arrest in September 2019, Brown told investigators he had been homeless when he met Buck on Adam for Adam, a gay dating and escort site, and moved in with him for part of summer 2019, where Buck had injected him daily for five weeks. Brown overdosed twice in one week. After his second overdose, Brown said Buck refused to call an ambulance and Brown was forced to call 911 at a nearby gas station. 
Buck use his money and privilege to exploit the wealth and power imbalances between himself and his victims who were unhoused, destitute and or struggling with addiction. Assistant U.S. Attorney Chelsea Norell said in a court filing. He spent thousands of dollars on drugs and party and play sessions that destroyed lives and bred insidious addictions. Buck, who amassed his wealth as a male model and then selling an Arizona company he rescued from bankruptcy, claimed that he loved both of the men who died in his apartment and that their deaths were not his fault. Their deaths were tragic, but I did not cause their deaths, Buck said. And of course, this isn't the only messed up stuff that Ed Buck has ever done. This is just the only messed up stuff he's actually been caught for and had to answer for. It's clear that he was defended for a pretty long time. Now, if you want to have a nice fun search on the internet, go to a non-Google or DuckDuckGo search engine. And I have my doubts about Quant now too, by the way. But do some experimenting with search engines. And if you type in Ed Buck, Adam Schiff, Ted Lieu, Hotel Los Angeles, you might find some interesting stuff. Might you find stuff that has something to do with Anthony Bourdain? You might. Do I know if that stuff is true? Of course not. It's rumored. Could I believe it? Well, yes. Because look who Ed Buck is. And then look at who Adam Schiff and Ted Lieu are. They lie about everything. They're as corrupt as anyone could ever be. And let's face it, both of them are obviously gay. It doesn't matter if they're married. They're sick people who protected this deranged criminal pervert from facing justice after drugging and killing people because he was an important cog in the Democrat Party's financial system. And at some point, you should ask yourself, what kind of political party continues to empower people like this? Now, segueing to other corrupt perverts in the Democrat communist hierarchy, Let's talk about Joe and Hunter Biden. Just the news has been dropping just bombshells all week. This is one from yesterday. This is John Solomon and Seamus Bruner. Memos gathered by FBI show pattern of Hunter Biden mixing business affairs with hunger charity. With his father's eight year tenure as Barack Obama's vice president waning, Hunter Biden received a remarkable overture in 2015. One of China's richest businessmen wanted to make a sizable donation to the World Food Program USA, WFP USA, which was led by the VP's son. WFP USA is a U.S.-based nonprofit dedicated to raising funds and building U.S. support for the World Food Program, the United Nations organization that fights global hunger. Oh, good. The United Nations. But soon, memos gathered by the FBI show the charitable discussions evolved into an expanding relationship between Hunter Biden and Chinese energy giant CEFC to include business deals that would eventually reap the Biden family millions of dollars. CEFC China is very interested in exploring humanitarian initiatives of mutual interest to the World Food Program USA and discussing investment opportunities with Burnham, 
an email received and then forwarded by Hunter Biden in October 2015 stated, Burnham was one of the many firms through which Hunter Biden and his partners like Devin Archer scored large investments. Now, just to pause for one second, what in the world does it mean to explore a humanitarian initiative of mutual interest? When you are doing a humanitarian initiative, there should only be one interest, the humanitarian initiative. The other companies shouldn't be profiting off it. That sentence as written basically says, let's get rich by pretending to support a humanitarian cause. And right there, you kind of begin to understand what all of philanthropy is. Check out Bill Gates and George Soros sometime. The story of CFC's dual pitch for charity and business opportunities is documented in emails and memos stored on the notorious laptop Hunter Biden abandoned at a Delaware computer shop. The device was eventually turned over in December 2019 to the FBI, which is leading an investigation into the taxes, finances and foreign business dealings of the president's son. The FBI's former intelligence chief said the Chinese overture to Hunter Biden fits the classic pattern of a foreign influence operation, much like was seen with Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell a few years ago. And if you were to have a contest for the congressman who was most like Adam Schiff and Ted Lieu, you would have to go with Eric Swalwell. First, you have to understand that China does not donate to American-led charities because they are altruistic, explained former FBI Assistant Director for Intelligence Kevin Brock. And Chinese intelligence operatives like Christine Fang don't cozy up to Eric Swalwell because he's a fun guy to be around. Chinese intelligence does what it does in order to steal information and influence American policymakers. It should be noted for the record, by the way, that Hunter Biden and people like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Bill Gates and George Soros also don't donate to charities because they are altruistic. It is always for mutual benefit. And I'm going to skip down a little bit in the interest of time. The pattern of Hunter Biden mixing charity with private business was repeated several times during his tenure as chairman of the World Food Program USA, the documents show. For instance, Hunter Biden would connect his Burisma Holdings colleagues in Ukraine to the food charity, and his father spoke at the charity's events while also attending a dinner that merged Hunter Biden's business clients and charity colleagues. You get that? So Joe Biden was never talking to Hunter Biden about his business dealings. He was talking to Hunter Biden about his charity dealings. Hunter Biden served on the WFP USA board from 2011 until 2017 and was chairman from 2011 to 2015, according to the nonprofit's annual reports. During that time, he leveraged his connections to the UN-affiliated organization and to his father, the vice president, who headlined multiple WFP USA events to enhance his business relationships with Russian, Ukrainian and Chinese oligarchs. So like our friends, you get it? He was doing all this work on behalf of the World 
food program. He was trying to feed hungry people, you know, starving people in Africa and other undeveloped nations. That's what we've always been told. I mean, we've been told that they're fixing that problem all around the world for four decades. It's crazy that it's still a problem, even after Hunter Biden was in charge of it. I mean, he is the smartest man Joe Biden knows. It seems like with all his business and political connections and being the smartest man that the fake president knows, he should have been able to solve world hunger in no time. So I'm going to leave that article. It's pretty long. All the detail is in there. It's extremely well-researched. So if you're interested in the subject, go to Just the News, find that article, and enhance your knowledge. And let's move to this article, also by John Solomon and Seamus Bruner. This was put out by Just the News last night. The headline is, Smoking Guns. Joe Biden referred business and mingled finances with son Hunter. Messages show. Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business Just popping that clip in as a little flashback so you remember what things were like back in the most honest, most popular campaign of all time. And by the way, that is still the White House's position that Joe and Hunter never discussed their business. So back to the article in Just the News. President Joe Biden was more involved in Hunter Biden's financial and business dealings than previously acknowledged, allowing his son to pay some of his bills, diverting one of his tax refunds to his son, rubbing elbows with the first son's foreign clients, and even directly referring a friend who wanted to, quote, do some work, end quote, with his son, according to email and text messages reviewed by Just the News. Jeff Cooper, quote, asked for you, end quote. Joe Biden texted his son, sending along the phone number of a well-to-do trial lawyer and longtime Joe Biden donor. Wants to do some work with you. Love, Dad. The summer 2018 message is one of the clearest pieces of evidence gathered by the FBI and congressional investigators that Joe Biden was not simply a passive bystander in his son's globetrotting business pursuits, but rather, at times, assisting and benefiting financially. The messages show. For instance, a string of spring and summer 2010 emails show Hunter Biden and a partner at his Rosemont Seneca firm assisted the White House with documents for Joe Biden's tax returns after his first year in office. Afterwards, they chose to divert the then vice president's Delaware state tax refund to Hunter Biden to pay off money the father owed his son, the email state. I am depositing it in his account and writing a check in that amount back to you since he owes it to you. Rosemont Seneca official Eric Schwerin wrote in June 2010 about Joe Biden's tax refund. Don't think I need to run it by him, but if you want to, go ahead. Another Schwerin email a month later entitled JRB Bills, using the future president's initials, listed a series of expenses from Joe Biden's lakefront home in Wilmington, Delaware, that Hunter Biden had paid. They included $1,239 of air conditioner repairs at Mom Mom's Cottage and another $1,475 to paint the back wall and columns at the lake house. There was $475 for shutters and $2,600 for building or repairing a stone retaining wall at the lake. And by the way, none of this is brand new information. This 
particular bit of information has been around for a real long time. And a lot of that stuff is happening lately. And I'm not saying that John Solomon and Seamus Bruner are behind the narrative. They're doing great work. And this is more of a compilation of things. But a lot of this stuff has been information that has been released over the last year and a half that Hunter Biden's laptop has been available for people to do the research on. I'm going to say once again that the Marco Polo report is going to be the definitive rundown on the Hunter Biden laptop. Everything else besides that that I have seen to this point is a lesser version of the work they've done. Other emails suggested Joe Biden, often referred to as Pop, the big guy, and my chairman in sensitive communications, was looking to Hunter Biden and Schwerin to find him riches for when he left office. Since Peter Schweitzer's blockbuster 2018 book, Secret Empires, How the American Political Class Hides Corruption and Enriches Family and Friends, there have been hints that Hunter Biden was providing a cut of his business to his father in the Obama White House and afterwards. An infamous 2017 email, for example, suggested 10% of a major Chinese deal was being reserved by Hunter for the big guy. And a wandering text message Hunter Biden sent to his daughter, Naomi, complained that, quote, unlike pop, I won't make you give me half your salary. But just the news and the Government Accountability Institute reviewed 100,000 plus email and text messages on the laptop that Hunter Biden abandoned at a computer repair shop in Delaware, later seized by the FBI, as well as bank records and memos obtained under FOIA by the FBI and in other court cases or voluntarily shared by two of Hunter Biden's estranged business partners. Those messages contained several references suggesting Joe and Hunter Biden at times commingled finances and business affairs. And that is true. Anybody who has done an ounce of research on this subject can see that Hunter Biden, James Biden and Frank Biden were all absolutely intertwined with the fake president, Joe Biden, in the family's corrupt business dealings. They are essentially a mafia. That is it. Joe Biden is not the ultimate boss, but he is the boss of his individual crime family. And that criminal enterprise has spanned decades. Shortly after Joe Biden had been sworn in as vice president in 2009, Hunter Biden joined forces with two of his close friends from Yale, Devin Archer and Christopher Hines, stepson of then senator and future secretary of state John Kerry who is now the climate czar. Heinz and Archer effectively merged the Heinz business, Rosemont Capital, named after the Heinz family's Rosemont Farm in Pennsylvania, with Hunter Biden's Seneca Global Advisors, registered in August 2008 by longtime Biden associate Eric Schwerin and named, like other Biden businesses, after one of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. And... Many of you have seen the picture of Hunter Biden's back tattoo, which is the Finger Lakes of upstate New York. And you know what? I just have to mention this. It's Western New York. I'm from upstate New York. Everybody always pretends that like Buffalo and Syracuse are upstate New York. They're not. They're Western New York. Let's just get that straight. 
It's a pet peeve of mine. Rosemont Capital formed the trunk of the Biden Archer Hines business tree. Soon there were Rosemont Seneca branches springing out globally in every direction. Rosemont Realty, Rosemont Seneca Technology Partners, Rosemont Seneca Bohai, and Rosemont Seneca Thornton, to name a few. With these entities in place, Joe Biden's brother James and son Hunter were able to cash in with foreign interests in regions of the world where the elder Biden held substantial sway. James Biden, for example, landed a billion dollar construction contract in Iraq while the vice president oversaw the U.S. military occupation there. Hunter Biden, along with Devin Archer, scored millions of dollars from the corrupt Ukrainian oil and gas company Burisma, coinciding with Joe Biden's point man appointment in the region. Neither Hunter Biden nor James Biden had any experience in Ukrainian energy or Iraqi construction, respectively. So why were they hired? A lawyer for Hunter Biden declined to return repeated messages seeking comment. Now, let's backtrack for just one second. So they had a construction contract in Iraq while Joe Biden was vice president and the U.S. had a military occupation there. That is basically the plot of one of the seasons of Arrested Development. So that's kind of odd. Also, watch Arrested Development. It's hilarious. And there's always money in the banana stand. But it's also important to note that where this article just says point man, recall that Joe Biden has often bragged about being named the point man in Ukraine by Barack Obama. So Obama named Biden the point man and immediately a new part of the Biden political corruption criminal enterprise just sprung out of nowhere. Congratulations, Hunter. What a savvy businessman, the smartest man the fake president knows. And are you ready for another very smooth segue? I think you are. So here it goes. Let's continue talking about Ukraine. This is from today. Abby Lee Hood writing for futurism.com. The headline, Ukraine reportedly using facial recognition to send photos of dead Russian soldiers to their mothers. In the week's most gruesome example of two wrongs don't make a right, a new report by the Washington Post found that Ukrainian soldiers are sending photos of dead Russian soldiers to their mothers using controversial facial recognition software made by Clearview AI. And Clearview AI is a pretty interesting company to research if you have the time, but they have just recently bragged to investors that they will have a hundred billion facial images by next year. So they got you. But back to the article. The software is so good, according to WAPO, that's the Washington Post. I don't know why they abbreviated it, but whatever. It was even able to identify an individual whose head had been caved in by grave wartime injuries. The company's tech, quote, can work on photos from multiple angles in darkness with and without glasses and facial hair, photos of only parts of a face due to state-of-the-art artificial intelligence technology. Clearview CEO Hoan Ton That 
told Futurism in the wake of the report. It has also been shown to be successful in the field when identifying deceased bodies, even with some facial damage. Oh, they should be so proud. One London surveillance expert told WAPO that though from a U.S. perspective, it's tempting to side with the Ukrainians. <laughs> the phenomenon makes the line between hacktivist and war criminal fuzzier than ever. Oh, yeah, it's such a fuzzy line. We really want to side with the Ukrainian Nazis, but then we have a perfect example of how truly Nazi they are. And then it's then it becomes a, a a morally cloudy issue, whereas before it was a moral certitude that we must hashtag stand with Ukraine because the celebrities tell us to. If it were Russian soldiers doing this with Ukrainian mothers, we might say, oh, my God, that's barbaric. Stephanie Hare told the outlet. And is it actually working or is it making them say, Look at these lawless, cruel Ukrainians doing this to our boys. Well, I'll take a guess. It's easy to see Hare's point about siding with the Ukrainian soldiers. Given the gobs of disinformation, Putin is reportedly sending his citizens and soldiers. You got to get that word reportedly in there. For crying out loud, Russia attacked the site of what is widely considered the worst nuclear disaster site in history and didn't seem to know or care about radiation poisoning until its fighters got sick and fled. Well, yeah, I mean, if that story was actually true at all, that would sound strange, except that story isn't true at all. And these people are writing for futurism. You got that? These are the people who are informing us about how good the technocracy will be, but they are absolutely as dumb as the 33% of Americans who are still supporting and approving Joe Biden's job as fake president. In fact, I would be tempted to bet my life that Abby Lee Hood is one of those ignorant and clueless 33%. But if a family truly does believe the propaganda about Ukrainians being overrun by Nazi terrorists and Western threats, how would they react to a bloody photo of their dead child? Well, they probably react the same way, regardless of what they believe, because that is probably the most horrific thing a parent could ever see. But yeah, sure. It's worse if they believe the propaganda about Ukrainian Nazis. These people are insane. And I know that I say that a lot and maybe too much, to be honest. But look at what these people do. This is really who they are and what they think. It is unreal. If Ukraine is still going to weaponize a piece of tech, that can scan a database of 20 billion images taken from social media and the internet, regardless of the potential dystopian consequences, it could still move forward in a way that doesn't result in as much mass trauma for mothers and families of the deceased. They are literally creating a fantasy world to defend the moral status of of Ukrainian Nazis because they don't want to admit that there are Ukrainian Nazis. Isn't that incredible? They are actually denying the legitimate barbarism, to use their word, of these atrocities, because if you can deny the atrocities individually, then you can deny the case that the Ukrainians 
actually are overrun with Nazis in their fighting forces and government, to be clear, and not in their citizenry. I'm not accusing Ukrainians of having some predisposition toward Nazism, just to be clear. But that is ultimately the tact that they use to deny everything that is inconvenient for them. They basically deconstruct any true story, break it down to all its narrative elements, and then try to cast doubt on each and every one of those narrative elements and make it seem like if you believe any particular thing, then you are a conspiracy theorist. So imagine what you would be if you believed all those particular things. And that amount of doubt is enough for all of the child brains in their audience to simply then respond to their emotional trigger words and deny the entire story. And it's very effective because the child brains in their audience don't have the ability to think for themselves. So in any situation where they believe there is some doubt, they will side always with what they consider the authoritative source. And I've said this on this show many times, but imagine what it is like for me. And you can imagine it for yourselves too, by the way, because I know we've all had these interactions, but imagine what it's like for me to encounter a uh, family member or former friend or whatever. And they are more inclined to trust Chris Cuomo, because he was on CNN, than they are to trust me about subjects they themselves don't know anything about. And I can discuss for literally an infinite amount of time. If you gave me food and water and some short bathroom breaks and a little bit of sleep, I could literally discuss all of these subjects until I die. And none of them can last in a conversation about any of these subjects for longer than five minutes. But yet I am not the authoritative source. The person working for CNN on television, reading scripts is an authoritative source because he's on television because CNN, well, they have a reputation to protect. They must have an ombudsman who's figuring out whether the things they're saying are true or false. And sure, they have FBI and CIA officials on their telecasts literally all the time, but they're not trying to trick us. They're an authoritative source. But let's go back to the article and read that one last little clause again. It could still move forward in a way that doesn't result in as much mass trauma for mothers and families of the deceased a kinder, gentler form of techno-Nazism. That's what we're after. Thanks, futurism. It's hard not to imagine using the same tech to more humane ends. You got that? So the technology is not the problem. The facial recognition technology that allows this is actually part of the solution toward a better world. For instance, wouldn't it be better to provide a kind of weekly casualty report and text it to the affected families? (laughs) Wow. Look at the big brain on Abby. Clearview AI is powerful enough so it could provide a service to those who aren't even sure if their loved ones are alive. Oh, yeah. 
the best case scenario. Newspapers used to report wartime death tolls for U.S. armies. Why can't Ukraine provide both its own and a fact-checked version of what Russia is giving its own people? Hey, you know what would be better, you millennial communist blogger? How about we get reports on what Ukraine is doing to its own people? That would be genius. Now, just a little heads up. Tonight, I am returning to my friend CanCon's live stream, and that'll be at 10 p.m. Eastern. So if you are prepared to burn the midnight oil and you would like to watch us rant about things, please join CanCon's live stream. I'll have links up for that in the Telegram sometime within the hour before we go live. That'll be t.me slash I'm your moderator. Find it in the info stream. And then next Tuesday afternoon, I'm joining Sean Morgan again, and we're going to discuss, I don't know what, just the issues of the day, but it'll be lovely. So I hope you all have a good weekend. Part six of the Who Is at Q series is now available to everybody paid or unpaid subscribers. And the finale is going to go up this weekend as well. And not to like toot my own horn, but I think it is one of the best and most significant things I've ever written. So I hope you take the time to read it. It is a bit long. It's like 6,000 words, but I believe it's worth your time. I hope you feel the same. And I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!